As far as I can tell, I am the only guy in my neighborhood with a stock tank. And you're wondering, why would you have a stock tank? I'm a city dweller. Well, I don't have any livestock, but I got it because I do a type of woodworking that requires wood still be green. In other words, it can't be dried out. It can't be kiln dried. And so I've got a, I've got a logger guy I met online, and uh, he brings me logs from Missouri. So I'll get a white oak log, and I'll split it, and I'll use part of it, and then the rest of it I will submerge in water to keep it green so I can keep it green for a year or longer, and I take it out and use it when I need it. And so I used to, have, I used to put this log, this unused log, in the, a friend's pond, but I decided one day, you know, I should really get a stock tank and I should just put it under my deck out back. Brenda wasn't sure at first, but I got a stock tank. And so uh, here, here's a picture. Here's an action shot. It's from last, last winter. And you can see it, it freezes hard as a rock in the winter. <clears throat> so I've got a stock tank under my deck. But I have this mysterious problem. I would fill up the stock tank. I would use the, the hose. And I would fill it up, and then I would come back the next day, and the water level would have dropped by two or three inches. Sometimes half the tank would be gone. And so I'm like, oh, great. I got this new stock tank, but it's got a leak. But I could not find a leak. And so it was just mysterious because sometimes I would fill it up, and I would come back, and none of the water would have drained out, sometimes a couple of inches. Sometimes half of it would be gone. And so it was a mystery wrapped in an enigma, right? And so some of you already figured this out because you're smarter than me. And so it turns out what would happen was sometimes I would fill up the stock tank and I would leave the hose submerged in the water. And since I have a frost-proof spigot on my house, and since the spigot is lower than the stock tank, the hose, <laughs> the hose would function as a siphon, and it would siphon off as much water as the end of the hose in the stock tank. So the point is that this hose was inadvertently functioning as a siphon. And so I didn't know it was happening. I didn't want it to happen, but it happened. And in the same way, there are things in our lives that can siphon off the vitality and even the unity of the church. And we don't know what's happening. We don't want it to happen, but it happens nonetheless. And so if this happens in, in the case of this church, instead of being a life-giving, fruitful, uh, joyful church, uh, we'll be a church that's characterized by fruitlessness. There'll be this sterile atmosphere. There will be this, this anxiety that just floats in the air. Today's passage has the potential to give us this same type of aha moment that I had about the hose in my stock tank. James 4, 1 through 6 gives us a perspective on unity that we may never have considered before. I suspect that all of us at one time or another, we, we come to the scriptures with this confirmation bias. We know what we think, we know what we want to believe, and so we go to scripture and we find it confirmed there. That's also called proof texting. But if we come to the scripture uh, teachable and we come open to God telling us something we've never heard before, many times we will find that we are surprised at the perspective that, that we find in scripture. I suspect uh, that that may be the case for many of us today as we look at James 4 verses 1 through 6. 
And so James first discusses in verses 1 through 3 the source of disunity in the church. Now we see right off the bat in verse 1 that James uses imagery associated with warfare to describe infighting in the church. He says this, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? And our answer to that question would often be, I can tell you the source of conflicts. It's those other people over there. They're wrong and they're stubborn. If they would just agree with me and admit it, everything would be the fine. Everything would be fine, right? Very simple. And that may, that may actually be the case in some situations, but that's a rather superficial answer. James wants us to look much deeper. And so he asks the second question, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. And the pleasures that James mentions here could be pretty much anything from pleasures associated with sexual sins to materialism, revenge, anger, or slander. And so pleasures are not inherently sinful, right? I mean, pleasures are created by God. He didn't have to create the world. He didn't have to create, create us with pleasures, with desires that we find pleasurable, that the problem comes when our pleasures dominate our lives and enslave us. The problem comes when our desires are paramount in our lives. And so James says that conflict, conflict comes when our pleasures wage war in our members. And members is a term that the New Testament often used to describe uh, the literal members of our bodies. And so when our pleasures, our passions dominate the members of our bodies, we sin against each other with our thoughts and our words and our actions. And the result is quarrels and conflicts. And those are basically synonymous terms in this, in this passage. Now, there's obviously a place for healthy disagreements among sincere followers of Christ uh, there will always be disagreements because in the church we deal with things that, that really matter. We, we deal with issues of life and death. We make decisions that affect uh, our lives in, in significant ways. Uh, for example, in the next several weeks and months, we as a church are going to have to make decisions about uh, regathering, when we're going to start gathering here in this building for worship again. We'll need to decide when we're going to start gathering and we're going to have a lot of decisions about how we're going to start gathering, what guidelines we're going to ask you to follow. And I can assure you, I know you know this, but there are disagreements. There are honest disagreements about all these things. It's true, for I, I just know it from casual conversations I've had with people. Uh, I've been on Zoom calls with other pastors in Manhattan. I've been on Zoom calls with other evangelical free church pastors around the country. And there are many different convictions on when we should start gathering again and then how we should start gathering. Some people are much more cautious than others. And so these disagreements exist, okay? The disagreements are not the problem. James is pointing out that such disagreements turn into open warfare when sinful pleasures dominate our lives. If we look at verse 2, we notice that the war between people is caused by the war within people. And so in verse 2 he says, You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
you do not have because you do not ask. And so James is rapid fire. He just says these things. He says you, the, he says you lust and do not have. Lust simply, return, simply refers to strong, intense desires. And the idea is that sometimes we want things so badly that we will do anything to get what we want. And James says sometimes you'll even murder somebody. And he's probably talking metaphorically there. Uh, he's probably not talking about the, all, many of you have murdered other, other ones of you. He's probably saying, referring to what Jesus said, that anger is murder of the heart. And so sometimes we want something so badly that we think and say murderous things, things that uh, injure other people. And then the second and the third sentences there, uh, it's, these, these are two, these are, these, uh, these are sentences that may clear up a mystery akin to the mystery of my stock tank. James says, you are envious. He says, you want what somebody else has. It could be their position. It could be their authority. It could be their influence. You want what somebody else has, and you cannot obtain it. And in James's mind, at this point, you've got two options, okay? And so one option is you could go all the way to the top, you could ask the God of the universe for what you want, okay? In the New Testament terminology, you can ask in Jesus' name. You know, Jesus, the one who has a name that's above every name. And you can go directly to the throne of grace. And you can ask the God of the universe to supply what you need, okay? What you want, you can ask and receive. Sadly, James says that his readers, when they lack something, instead of asking and receiving, James says, you fight and quarrel. And that is so true. That is so true to life. Instead of leaving our requests before God, we, we kind of take matters in our own hands. And we just do whatever it takes to make our point and get our way. And so what's the source of quarrels among you? Mystery solved. James advances his argument further in verse 3 when he says this. When you do ask... You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And so James says that when you do pray, instead of praying with God's interests in mind, you pray with a view toward your own personal pleasures and your own interests. And in his wisdom, God often does not grant us requests that will fuel our self-centeredness. Now, we can't always figure out why we didn't get what we wanted, what, what we've asked for. Uh, prayer doesn't work that way. But sometimes, sometimes, James says, he refuses our requests because our motives are wrong. And any good parent would do the same thing. And so James is painting a picture of a church that embodies the world instead of embodying the gospel. Worldliness involves conflict, quarreling, as we saw last week in, in, in chapter 3, jealousy, bitterness, arrogance. It could involve slander. It could involve gossip. And such worldliness, I mean, it's just observable all over the world in all generations. I find intriguing these, these comments that James makes in these last couple of verses about prayer. And these verses suggest that you can tell a lot about a church by looking at its prayer life or its lack thereof. Is prayer a last resort that we finally bust out in order to get what we want? 
or is prayer our, our, just, our just most natural initial impulse because we care so deeply about God's fame and God's reputation? You know, honestly, establishing a, a prayer culture here at Faith has been one of the most challenging things that we have ever attempted. It's, it's just hard. I have no doubt that there's spiritual opposition to it, and it's just hard to know how to lead it. But, but we want to be a church that, that uh, prays individually in secret. That's taught in Matthew 6. We want to be a church that gathers in groups to play, to pray uh, and play. Uh, Acts 13. But we also want to be a church that gathers together and we pray in, in unison. Paul mentioned earlier, we have this online prayer gathering tonight at 5.30, and that may, may be the weirdest thing that you've ever thought about attending or you've ever thought about not attending. But we tried it last week, last month, and it was actually fantastic. Some people told us, I prefer to go uh, to this online prayer group than getting dressed up, driving in my car to the building, and sitting in a room with other people. And so I would encourage you just, just to try it. And this is a way that we, we train ourselves in God-centered praying. This is going to be an amazing time. I, I just know it. But it's going to be a time where we focus on the attributes of God and some of the names of God. And so we'll meet in a big Zoom room, and uh, we'll get some brief instructions, and then we'll break out. We'll be broken out into four or five people or four or five computer screens, and we will pray together, and it's not near as weird as it sounds, and uh, we'll pray, and then we'll come back together, brief, brief instruction, and we'll go back and pray, and it's just a, it's just a great way for us as a church to, to have this type of God-centered prayer, where we pray in light of who God is and what God wants, and so I would love if we had three or four times more people than we had last time. Consider it. You got the information in the e-blast. Join us tonight if you can at 530. Back to James 4. After discussing the causes of disunity, James talks about a God-centered approach to unity in verses 4 through 6. And it's significant that at this point, James doesn't say, okay, here's five easy steps to have unity in a church. He doesn't go that direction. Rather, he pre presents this God-centered perspective on conflict, or more accurately, a God-centered perspective on the source of our conflict. Uh, James is going to have us think about conflict in the church from God's point of view. We all know how to think it from, about it from our own point of view, but he wants us to think about it from God's point of view. In verse 4, James introduces a very thought-provoking category. Namely, friendship with the world. Paul says this, you adulteresses. You ever got a letter and that was how it was addressed? You adulteresses. It's feminine. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When James calls his, his readers adulteresses, he's picking up imagery that's very common throughout the Old Testament. And there we find that God is often depicted as a husband and his people are depicted as an unfaithful wife. And so you find it of the children of Israel in the wilderness. You find it in the book of Hosea, the whole image of the book of Hosea. God told the prophet, uh, I want you to go marry a prostitute so that your marriage will be an object lesson for the people, so that, you're, you're, so, that, so that the people of Israel will understand how I feel. I feel like a husband whose wife won't quit cheating on him. And so 
God or James says to, to the people here, he says that your infighting is evidence of spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness to God. And James described this, describes this unfaithfulness as friendship with the world and therefore hostility toward God. And so the things that had caused disunity were characteristic of the world instead of being characteristic of God's children. Instead of having the family resemblance with God, we have the family resemblance of the world. And so the world is characterized by bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, arrogance, unbridled lusts, desires, and a commitment to personal pleasure. By contrast, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Those are the ones that will have the family resemblance. Why? Because God is a peacemaker. In Christ, he made peace with us. He provided a way for us to be restored and have this this deep shalom, this well-being that we'll, we'll experience throughout eternity. And so James reminds us we can't have it both ways. If we're friendly with the world, we're being hostile, unfaithful to God. Look at verse 5. He says, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? And then he's not quoting a specific Scripture, but probably making a reference to a cluster of Scriptures uh, where he says, He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Several places in the Old Testament, God is called a jealous God. In Exodus 25, for example, 20 verse 5, it's a a reference to uh, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because I am a jealous God. And in most contexts, jealousy is is unhealthy. Jealousy is kind of this uh, insecure, this this clingy kind kind of controlling attitude. But there are other times when jealousy is fully appropriate. If you enter into the covenant of marriage, uh, it is fully appropriate that you have a type of jealousy. For example, if your spouse is flirting with someone else. And the, the idea here is that if you enter into the new covenant in Christ's blood, it is appropriate if you have other gods, if you are worshiping other gods beside the one true living God. God does not want to be one among several gods that we worship. No, God has put his very spirit to dwell within all who believe. Therefore, he zealously, jealously desires that we be faithful to him. And in verse 6, we have our only hope. This is our only hope of putting uh, putting away worldliness. And our only hope is humility that invites the grace of God. Look at verse 6. He says, but he, but God, he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And mentioning a greater grace, James is probably saying there, God gives us a grace if we want it, if we can receive it, a grace that is greater than our sin. It's greater than our unfaithfulness. God's grace, his unearned unmerited favor. It is our only hope for genuine, lasting unity. And Paul alludes to Proverbs 3.34 when he writes that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the, to the humble. And so everything that Paul or everything that James has described when he talks about the things that cause disunity, it all fits under the umbrella of pride. And so if we walk in pride toward one another, 
God opposes us. This is a serious thing. For our own good, he blocks us when we lust and do not have, and so we murder each other, even if only in our hearts. He blocks us when we are envious and cannot obtain, and so we fight and quarrel. He blocks us when in pride we care more about our will than his will. God is opposed to the proud. But the good news is that he gives grace to the humble. He lavishly supplies grace when we humble ourselves before one another and before him. And this grace shows up all sorts of ways. Sometimes God will, God's grace will vindicate you. God's grace will, will rescue your reputation when you've been falsely accused. Sometimes God gives you the grace of contentment where you honestly don't have to win every argument anymore. You say, you know, it's actually enough that God knows. And so I'm content in this situation. I don't have to fight. I don't have to quarrel. Sometimes God gives the grace to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19.11 says, it is the glory of a person to overlook an offense. And so this is a radically different way of approaching disagreements and conflicts in the church. And so our only hope for genuine unity is to walk in humility in a way that invites the grace of God. That is our only hope, our only hope. One thing I've noticed over the years as a pastor uh, is that everybody has their church horror story, right? When I meet people and they find out I'm a pastor, sometimes just the the first thing they lead with is, oh, here's my church horror story. Uh, I've got church horror stories. I grew up in South Mississippi. I, I experienced and I witnessed just this incredibly shocking racism in the church. I've got my own horror stories from my time here at Faith. If you read the New Testament, you will see church horrors. Read 1 Corinthians. Oh, my goodness. Read 1 Corinthians. You will find things you, you just can't believe. Paul says there are, there are these factions. People line up behind different teachers. He says there, there's people that are suing each other. They're taking each other to court. And Paul makes this little off-the-hand comment. Don't you know you're going to judge angels? Can't you handle this? Uh, there was a guy who was sleeping with his stepmom, and nobody seemed to matter. There are all these doctrinal problems. There are some people that didn't believe in the resurrection. There was this pride over spiritual gifts. I mean, gifts, grace that God had given, and people were puffed up with pride about the gifts that they had. And so the, the, the church at Corinth, it's just one church horror story. And some people experience that in our day, and they check out and they give up. And they are gone. They are, they are done with church. And I get that. And I grieve over that. But I ask the question, is there any hope? Is there hope that we would not be that church? Well, our only hope is that we walk in humility so that we invite the grace of God upon us. That is our only hope for unity. One more thought this morning. I just want to make clear, our goal in pursuing, pursuing unity is not merely to avoid being somebody's church horror story. The goal is actually to cultivate a type of supernatural unity that the world cannot ignore. 
That's the vision of Jesus' prayer in John 17. I think Paul made reference to it in his prayer. But this is what Jesus, this is what Jesus prayed in John 17, all the way down to verses 22 and 23. Jesus says to God the Father, The glory which you, Father, have given me, I have given to them, to my followers, that they may be one just as we are one. God the Father and Jesus. And he says, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, that they might have such a, a mature unity so that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them even as you have loved me. In other words, Jesus says that our unity is supposed to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ. Our unity is supposed to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ. Francis Chan wrote this, this very convicting book entitled Letters, Letters to the Church. Uh, somebody gave it to me as a pandemic present. But in that book, he points out that this verse about our unity leading people to believe in Jesus, it just doesn't make any sense to most of us. And he wrote this. He said, how could our unity result in the world's belief? How could seeing us love one another make someone believe that Jesus truly came from heaven? It feels like saying two plus two equals a thousand. Just remember that scripture is filled with impossible equations. Marching around a city seven times doesn't seem as if it would result in its walls collapsing. But then it happened, as in Joshua 6. And then he says, church unity doesn't seem as if it would result in people getting saved but it actually did happen. Read Acts 2, verses 44 through 47. And so what's at stake in our unity is God's reputation. People have a right to look at us and see how we love each other and see the type of unity that we have, see the way we put aside differences because we're not puffed up with pride. It's not about us. It's about God's glory. People can look at us and, and decide whether or not Jesus actually came from God and whether God actually loves them. And so there could not be more at stake whether or not we live this out. I hope you can join us next week. In the next passage, James explains a series of choices that we need to make if we're going to put away the sins that siphon off our vitality and our unity choices that we need to make if we're going to walk in humility and experience God's grace and therefore exhibit the type of unity that convinces others to believe in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this vision that James gives us, that Jesus gives us for unity. We thank you that you have provided everything we need to walk in humility. Thank you that we have reliable guides what humility looks like. We pray, God, that these thoughts would be on our hearts and minds this week. And we pray that we would joyfully set aside those things that siphon off the vitality and the unity that you desire for us. Oh, God, may we, we joyfully die to self and live for you. We thank you, God, for the spirit who dwells within us. Uh, may we experience great joy in being your friend, these, this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.